Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every other Thursday, we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles, one old favorite from the archives. This week, a story that Tyler Green first shared on the podcast in 2015. Now, recently, Tyler created a podcast of his own called This Is My Family. So stay tuned, because after the story, I want to play you a clip from Tyler's new show in which this story continues. Also, the portion of Tyler's story that was recorded live on stage is from a Chicago-based storytelling show called Outspoken, produced by David Fink and Ray Teresi. So, without further ado, here is Tyler Green with a story we call Like Lovers Do. Six weeks ago now, I performed at a storytelling night here in Chicago called Outspoken, which is a new LGBT-focused storytelling night here in the vast Chicago storytelling scene. I was so nervous that night. Even despite the fact I was surrounded by all of my friends, I just was shaking. I think I had two or three glasses of wine before I even got on stage, which is never a good idea for anyone. Sweaty palms... Part of the reason that I was nervous is that this was about things that I had never told in public before. I had definitely told on porches here in Chicago or in one-on-one situations, but I never told them to a room full of 200 people 
with the subject, uh, my partner, in the room. And some of the stuff that we talk about when it comes to his family, and his family is in China, and his relationship with them is stuff that I had to ask permission from him to tell. A little over three years ago now, I think OkCupid had just introduced the sort of Find Me Now feature, which is pretty similar to like a Grinder or a Tinder or any number of these apps that are out now that I haven't really used. I had gotten completely drunk with a friend of mine, as I did a lot during that time of my life. It was about two, three in the morning, about the time that you start to get a little interested in maybe having somebody over. And so I go to this feature and I'm looking at all the people. And at this point, I'm so drunk and so kind of, I'll use the word desperate, that I'm just kind of clicking on everybody, you know, and I'm messaging everybody. I'm copy and pasting a message and just sending it to like over 20 people. And it's like basically the same thing, like come over, hang out, let's talk, you know, that thing, right? And I'm being super charming, but kind of annoying. And so I get this guy and he responds to me. And so I'm like, okay, got somebody on the line, right? I got him. I'm going to reel this person in. And so I just keep messaging him. And meanwhile, my friend is sitting there continuing to drink and we're hanging out. And he agrees to finally come over. So friend passes out and I'll never forget, Joe, he shows up. I see this small, quiet looking Chinese boy wearing bright white pants and a black and white striped shirt, t-shirt in the middle of winter, and just got this smile on his face. All teeth and like cute little round cheeks. And, and he's so tiny and so adorable in that truest sense of that word, but so unlike any other person I had been with up to that point. And you could tell that he's like wasted, <laughs> he's, but he's really quiet and really timid. And so I invite him in and we talked and nothing really happened that night. I think we might have made out a little bit, but I distinctly remember looking him in the eye and saying, you are trouble. You're going to be trouble. <laughs> and uh, the next morning I woke up and I remember one of the things that I texted him on OkCupid was that if you come over, I'll make you breakfast. So I made him breakfast and he left and kind of just courted for a while. And so that is the difference, I think, between the past relationships and this one. It was the first one where it felt like, okay, I found somebody who is in many ways the exact opposite of me. So he slowed me down. He sort of put the brakes on and he forced me to kind of question a lot of the things that I did, a lot of the stuff that I've done and a lot of the behaviors that I have. And that's how it sort of all began. And then at some point, I think it was about a year into our relationship, he went home to China, as he does every year, and he came out to his family. His mom was very, very upset. We got really depressed, threatened to kill herself if he didn't break up with me. Uh, and so then there was another phase where he said he broke up with me. So at some point, we decided that we were going to get married. We made this sort of life plan together after we talked about the milestones of having a kid, getting married, all the things that you discuss as a couple. But for somebody like me who's incredibly anxious, the idea of proposing caused me such anxiety that I said, you have to propose because I can't do this. 
just like the very thought of proposing to him made me just as anxious as I was when I was introduced at Outspoken that night in Boys Town in Chicago. <laughs> there are moments in life when what happens to our loved ones is completely out of our control. I have a mass on my spinal cord, he told me over the phone while I was at work at WBEZ. A mass? Does that mean like cancer or what? He said, I don't know. I can't really read this report. Now, he does come from China, and English is his second language, but most of us in this room, unless you're a doctor, probably can't read medical reports. So I went home immediately, and a lot of people in situations like these would go into sort of a panic mode, appeal to the emotion of the situation, hear that word cancer and mass, and get freaked out, and be entirely unhelpful. I have anxiety. I'm putting my hands behind my back to remain calm. <laughs> and uh, what I do to create order in my life is I make lists. Lists are very calming to me. And so I went into caregiver mode almost immediately. I went and I looked for the top surgeons in the city. I sent the MRI results in. What they do is you send them in and then they call you back on their terms. So the next day we got like two calls almost immediately. Yeah, you got to come in. We made an appointment at Rush Hospital, one of the great neurosurgical institutions in the country. And we went into a room, and I spent like 30 minutes yesterday trying to think of like a pop culture reference for this nurse to try to describe her for you. And I typed hot movie nurse, hot TV nurse. Let's just say she was hot and blonde. The doctor, on the other hand, we did not struggle with a pop culture reference. He was McDreamy. He walked in and he, Harvard educated, hotter than hell, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He said, you have a tumor in your spinal cord, it needs to come out. We do minimally invasive spinal cord surgeries here. We do them a lot and we do them very well. We make a small incision, we cut out the tumor, we seal you back up, you recover for six to eight weeks, and that's it. So, <laughs> we made an appointment, and I think now at this point it was thinking back probably only because of how hot he was, uh, but there was just something about him that instilled a confidence in us to <laughs> say yes. Um, so the next day I was uh, at work and I got another call from one of the hospitals. This was Northwestern which was higher ranked than Rush. Um, and this guy in particular was an expert in spinal cord deformity reconstructions. So we figured, okay, it's like two blocks from where we live downtown right now, and he knows the area pretty well, we'll give him a shot. And the doctor came in, his name was Tyler Kosky, had my first name, so that was a good sign. And he was completely disheveled. He had like a surgical hat still on. Uh, he had all of his fatigues on, no Armani suit or anything like that. And he had a computer and he said, has anybody showed you this MRI? And we sort of both looked at each other and said, no, actually we haven't seen it yet. We've seen the text, but not the image. So he brings his computer down and he, he clicks a, a box in the corner, I'll never forget. It was The Hobbit, he was watching The Hobbit. <laughs> And I'm like, you could talk now, but I'm sold. But he, he talked. 
talked for another like 45 minutes to an hour about everything that could go wrong in this situation. It was the first time I heard the word paralysis. It was the first time I heard the word cancer. Um, and it was his opinion that the surgery should not be minimally invasive, that instead it should be open. And so instead of making a small incision on the neck, you make a much larger incision and you open the entire neck. Um, his justification for this was that my partner is about 105 pounds, uh, is very skinny, and so there's not a whole lot of room to work. And it was pushing so hard against the spinal cord that he didn't want to risk it. So we did what any uh, gay couple in distress does in a situation like this, and we went to uh, Crate and Barrel. <laughs> <laughs> We walked around uh, for like 30, 45 minutes and just looked at shit. <laughs> um, and then just sort of looked at each other and were like, yeah, let's, let's go with that guy. Uh, it seemed like the right thing to do, so. It's the day of the surgery and there are moments in life when what happens to our loved ones is entirely out of our control. I don't know if any of you have had a moment where you had a loved one go to a major operation where he's probably gonna live, but you don't necessarily know something horrible could happen. And there's that moment where they take the person away on the gurney, and you sort of play that moment, I still do it, back in your mind, because you wanna do it better, you wanna do something else, you wanna hug them or kiss them or squeeze their hand or do something, but it sort of just happens very objectively and fast, and then they're gone, and they're not in your hands anymore. So they told me the surgery was supposed to be four hours, which is, in my mind, a long time. And I went to the waiting room at Northwestern, which contains, I don't know, probably 100 different people, all different levels of extreme situations. There are TVs that have numbers and statuses. So I'm looking at that number, and then there's two volunteers at a desk with two phones. Those phones go to the operating rooms. You get updates periodically. So four hours, I've got amazing friends. My friend Andrew stopped by, brought snacks. He's been through multiple surgeries. Stayed with me for two, three hours. My friend Chris from college came. We hung out for a little bit. And then hour four came along and I hadn't received any updates. My friend Amber showed up and I asked her to sit down and wait for a second because I was gonna try to get to figure out what was going on. So I called the operating room and uh, she said, everything is fine, but we had a little bit of a delay. Now in a situation like that, of course, I'm like, a delay? What do you mean? Is he gonna die? What's happening? She, of course, is not going to tell me anything other than we had a little bit of a delay. We'll call you back. So at this point, five hours, six hours, people are leaving the waiting room. Like, there were 100 people there before. Maybe there's 20, seven hours. There's me, Amber, talking to each other about nothing, and this other family that had been there all day, and I will never forget this family, I don't know what was going on, uh, but it was sudden, I could tell, and very, very grim. And so they were having a sort of a prayer circle, and I was with my friend. At hour eight, uh, Dr. Tyler Kosky busts through the operating room door, and I will never forget his face. If you watched Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi in their heyday, didn't like Pete Sampras, by the way. I was an Agassi guy. But when Pete won, he always had this look on his face like he was fucking exhausted. But then he'd get this little smirk. <laughs> like, I did it, you know? And that's exactly what Dr. Kosky's face looked like. He came up to me and explained what happened. He said, when you called at hour four, 
the tumor was connected to a big nerve for movement and for sensation. So he had peeled away each fiber of the tumor for movement, successfully at hour four. And then he did most of the one for sensation, so as expected. And then there was a little tiny piece of tumor still attached to the nerve. And he said, I looked at it and I had to decide. And I heard that word tumor, very unsettling. And he said, we could either cut it and risk that he would never feel his hand again or do radiation. And I said, radiation, so is it cancer? And he said, well, we flash froze the sample in the operating room and there's a 95% chance that it is not cancer. We will know for sure in a month, but there's a very good chance. <sighs> Big sigh of relief, right? I said, so what did you do? And he said, I snipped it. And I, you know, I do the moth as um, Art said, and I hear a lot of stories and I need to hear more stories of surgeons because that moment, that decision, I have no idea. And uh, so I thanked him. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. Thanks, doc. And uh, he sent me up to the ICU where Joe was recovering. And he was higher than a kite. <laughs> like morphine times 100. <laughs> and he was awake. And uh, I walked up to him. And I grabbed his hand. And I squeezed it. And I said, honey, can you feel that? And he said, yes. Why? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, nah, you'll just find out tomorrow. And <laughs> just, just turn around. <laughs> Let Amber sort of deal with that moment. So. My friend Don, uh, who had a moment before I came on stage, um, has this theory about stories where he says that if you're the hero when you've finished your story, then you should write it again. The hero of this story is not me. The hero of this story is my partner. Who, whoo mm, who went through this process of surgery, which is not why I'm getting emotional. That was tough and he did it, and I'm proud of him. The part of the story that I didn't tell you was that he came out to his parents, who are from China, uh, two years before this. They did not handle it well. One of the bargaining chips for his mother was that we had to break up, um, or she was gonna kill herself. Now, we don't know if that was serious or not, but you gotta take that seriously. So we sort of told her that that was what we were gonna do and they Skype every week and I would go to the corner and sort of hide away and it just happened that way for a year and gave him his time. This last winter he went back to China and came out again to his family and told them about the surgery, told them that I had been living with him this whole time and that I was the one that was taking care of him. About a month ago, um, I was sitting on the couch watching Oz, and uh, he is on the phone or on the, on the iPad with his mom, and I'm sitting there next to him, closer than I've ever sat when he's been in conversation with her, and he turns the iPad over to me, and his mom is there. And through translation, he said that she said that she was very proud of me, and thanked me for taking care of her son on behalf of their whole family. So, tomorrow morning, you can't write this, we are going to sign on our new home in Edgewater that is um, big enough for a little baby and uh, hopefully a mother from the East.
Thank you. Wow. That was beautiful. Someone makes us cry every damn month. <laughs> oh, that was wonderful. Um, oh, my gosh, yes! Come. <laughs> I never thought I would cry, but I did. <laughs> By the way, I could read that report, okay? I speak English. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I came up here, it's because we, uh, we're going to get married this October, but he said, you're going to propose, and I never did, so Tyler James Green, will you marry me? was Tyler Green. And you know, not only did Tyler's mother-in-law move in, but I'm happy to report that Ziwoo and Tyler had that baby boy. His name is Sam. He's 19 months old. The family moved to California just before the pandemic hit. And during the last few months, Tyler's been making a brand new podcast called this is my family. It's an interview show about how we build a life with the people we love and how those people shape us. Tyler interviews people like iconic drag queen Latrice Royale and performance poet Jay Ivey about their family of origin, their chosen family, and creative families. But the first episode is all about Ziwoo, Tyler, and Sam their family story, and we're happy to share a clip of that pilot today. We start with a question from Tyler's producer, Trisha, about the process of making Sam. Tyler's sister was their egg donor, and they hired a surrogate named Emily to carry the baby. So you've got Jessica on board to be the egg donor. She's done her part. Ziwoo's done his part. But now you need a place for this baby to grow. Tell me about meeting your surrogate, Emily. Ziwu and I went to this surrogacy conference. Uh, it's called, not joking, Men Having Babies. It is still around and they do really great work. They have like all kinds of baby making things to buy and hire. And specifically, they have surrogacy agencies who put up a bunch of tables and you walk around and they try to convince you to use them to help you find somebody to carry your baby. 
So this is like a convention hall, but instead yeah. of swag tables with Brandon yeah. stuff, it's like happy photos of very healthy looking people that all say, this is where your baby can grow. Yeah. It's like gay man baby con. And there's brochures and logos on pens and this whole convention-y vibe. That's right. That is 100% right. I still have all of the pens. <laughs> anyway, so we went to that conference twice, actually. And the second time was like the real time. And so we we connected with uh, a surrogacy agency that time called Family Source Consultants. And we filled out some forms, basically an application. And our only real request on the forms was that this person live near a major airport so that we could get there easily. And honestly, like at the top, we said, we're not picky, but this person cannot be a Trump supporter. <laughs> and that was like three years ago now. So we fill out the form and then one day we get this email from Family Source and they said that they found a match for us. We get on a Skype call and I remember seeing Emily and thinking, wow, she is incredibly young. And then seeing her partner Dylan and thinking, holy crap, those are the biggest arms I have ever seen on a person in my life. He has these big football arms. And I looked at them and I thought they could straight up be out of like, Friday Night Lights or some sort of like high school story like that, you know, where Emily is definitely the one getting tossed in the air and Dylan is the one throwing her as she spins around. Exactly. Yeah. They totally look like a college cheerleading couple. Yes. And then they started talking and it was confirmed. They were the sweetest, kindest, nicest, most genuine people I have ever met. Um, so we were really, really lucky. And Emily and I have talked a lot over the years. And we've had some really beautiful conversations about why she does what she does. And so for this show, I thought it would be really important for people, for our new community that we're building, to hear directly from, for all intents and purposes, a professional surrogate. So I called her up. I have had two beautiful babies of my own, and then I have had three surrogate babies. Do you remember the first time you were like, I'm going to be a surrogate? I was so young, actually. I was like 18 years old, and I remember watching a surrogate on TV, and I thought it was absolutely the coolest thing, and I did so much research on it. Obviously knew that I wanted to have my own children first, and so um, it was just always in the back of my mind. And the second I had my son, which is my last, I started the process literally like a few weeks later, so... <laughs> What was it about what you saw that made you want to do it? It was really cool. I saw her um, like carry the baby, and then it was kind of almost like a reality show. Um, she handed it over to the parents, and just seeing the parents, kind of like an adoption, just how amazing it was. I was just like, wow, to be able to give that to somebody. I mean, what could be a greater blessing? So We had this Skype conversation and I remember from my perspective being like, I mean, I'm nervous all the time yeah. about everything. Um, so it's no different. But I remember being like, wow, this is so not foreign, but different for me until yeah. basically Sam was born. So yeah. like, but that moment in particular, I remember seeing the two of you and being like instantly at ease. Yes. Do you remember how you felt during that call? I do too. Um, it's always nerve wracking. I mean, it was obviously my second time and I was still nervous um, to meet you guys, but I did. You guys were just so relaxed and so calm and you could just tell that you guys naturally were that way and naturally got along. And I always tell people, they're like, well, how did you know? And how did you pick? And you just know, like you just get a feeling and you just know that those are your people. And 
That's just how I always feel about it. How do you look at and sort of define the relationship you have with us? I personally like that you guys are just so real. You guys are just so open about your life in general and real things that go on, what you guys are doing for work and if Sam is sick or what you guys are making for dinner, you know, just such personal things. Like with you guys, I have a journey and a very personal relationship. So you had two babies of your own. I'm curious the difference in sort of the day-to-day, I guess, of a pregnancy of your own and a pregnancy for other people, right? Yeah. Are there differences? I mean, it is different. You know, when you have your own kid, you're not necessarily more relaxed, but, you know, you just kind of trust yourself more. When you are carrying somebody else's child, you have a little bit more pressure to obviously take care of that child a lot better, you know? And so it's not necessarily super different, but personally for me, I definitely cared what I did, what I ate. I mean, everything to take the best care of your guys' baby. So, yeah, there has to be difficult moments. Obviously, it's pregnancy. It's incredibly beautiful, but it's also painful. And like, yes, there's, yeah. there's certainly lots of difficult moments. If you were to share like a difficult moment or, or two, like does anything rise to the surface? Like um, what's hard about it? Definitely. So first trimester is always a little rough for me. I know that I'm going to be very nauseous and possibly sick with vomiting, which is just very normal in pregnancy. But it definitely, you know, takes a toll on your body for those few weeks. And I can't be as active as I would like to be with my own family, which I don't necessarily feel guilty about. I mean, they know it's part of the process, but, and then delivery, obviously, is very hard. I'm sure any mom will tell you that. Emily is the sweetest human, and I think she's being kind of humble about how difficult childbirth is. I have not had kids, but everyone I know that has delivered a baby says it's not incorrect what Carol Burnett says. You take your bottom lip and pull it over your face, and that's what it feels like. Ah, yep. Yeah. So Emily's there, you and Zewa are there, and of course Dylan's there in the delivery room. And you've brought along someone else who is very excited about this moment. Yes, my husband's mom, Ai Ping. And uh, she flew here from China a month before Sam was born because she'd never actually visited her son, who had been here for almost a decade. And so we thought, you know, what better time for her to come visit us than right before the birth of her grandson. So she flew here and met me and we kind of hung out for a month. She cooked us three meals of authentic Chinese food, homemade dumplings every single day. And it was kind of blissful, actually. So, folks, be sure to check out Tyler's new podcast for the end of this story. It's called This Is My Family. And it's wherever you get your podcasts and at timfshow.com. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC.